Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. No mai, hari mai, ki tick tick stuff's 2020 election podcast. Moterapere, fringa o nuku rua te kau ma rua. Ko Adam Dudding tene. Ko Eugene Bingham tene. Tena koto katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the election, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular korero. And today, that particular korero is that there was an election on Saturday and Labour won by heaps. So that's it for today's Tick Tick Podcast. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thanks to everyone who's listened over the past 10 weeks. See you all again in 2023. Hey, Adam, I know the election's over, and I know Labour did one, that's right. And yeah, this is basically our last show, but do you think we could perhaps give our listeners a little bit more detail on what happened? Oh, okay, sure. Uh, Let's try that again. There are 1,095 days until the election. Give or take. So, we've got that to look forward to, eh? But first we should get the 2021 out of the way, and... Wow, it was a thing, right? You know, so biggest turnout since 1999, third general row of increased turnout, that's the percentage of people who actually voted versus those who were enrolled, and there were about 2 million advance votes, which is not the same as advance with a capital A votes, if you get what I mean. There most certainly were nowhere near 2 million of those. But yeah, big day. How was your polling day, Adam? My polling day was very good, but uh, Advance still did get almost 20,000 votes, which I know that's infinitesimally tiny, but it's still quietly horrifying. I don't think we should just stop talking about them. Okay, zipped. Shall not pass my lips again. Anyway, you asked, how was my voting day? I did. Uh, and it was it was great. I decided to follow those people who reckon that to vote before election day is kind of like unwrapping your presents before Christmas, and saved it all up, went up to what is my kid's former and current high school and went on in and got my free pen and um, sanitised my hands. I really overlooked something, though. Apparently, the hand sanitizer this year smelt divine. It was like the, oh. the, the fruit of the gods. And I forgot to sniff my hands. But there you go. Uh, if the worst thing that happens at the election is you forget to sniff the hands, that's, that's not so bad. It's a good day for democracy. Didn't vote, went out, and then I realised I'd made a terrible mistake. Oh, what was that? Got home, looked on Twitter, all these pictures of people showing off with their dogs at the at the at the polling booth. Forgot to take Maggie. But Adam, you actually asked the Electoral Commission people about taking your dog. How did you forget your dog? You're right. It was a terrible oversight. I don't know how it happened. Anyway, how was how was how was yours today? Yeah, it was good. It was good. I took a walk up to the local hall with the family, both our boys and our daughter-in-law, caught up with some neighbours. It was our youngest boy's first election, so he was excited. And there were a bunch of his mates who came along too, which was so cool to see. I felt all patriotic and almost heart-burstingly proud of them. And then we wandered into the office, didn't we? Yeah, because unlike some people who, as far as I can tell, you know, voted, exercised their civic duty and then just bunked off for the rest of the day or went and watched the telly, we went into the staff offices and uh, joined in the extravaganza, which was the staff election live stream. So Tracy Watkins and Ali Moore sort of ran the show and we popped in for a bit and ran the desk for a little bit and messed up a couple of live crosses. And it was it was all pretty exciting. Got to uh, We interviewed Verity Johnson and Max Tweedy and Emmeline Pickering-Martin on their thoughts and reactions as as we click the refresh buttons and all that stuff it was it was it was pretty interesting pretty fun really it was pretty cool crossing to chris bishop in hut south there and my highlight was when he got delivered a beer live on the live stream 
That was indeed an exciting moment. Fun times. He clearly needed that beer. It, uh, there was a, a pretty good photo doing the rounds by later that evening of him staring into the void as the full extent of the national defeat sort of struck and he didn't realise there was a camera on him. But anyway, that went on for a few hours and uh, 1.1 million people turned in for that stream, which is kind of kind of cool. Stuff yeah, hasn't really done TV before in that way. So uh, that was that was pretty good fun. And then it was over. Went home. Read tweets for a few hours because I couldn't get to sleep and then went to bed. So that was uh, Saturday. It's now Wednesday. We're putting together this episode. But what, what do we do after this? There's no more election. Yeah, well, we are waiting for the referendum results, of course. October the 30th, they come out. But after that, hmm, good question. And it's one that's been asked of us by a couple of listeners, Karano Biggerman and Donna Ockerbock. Shout out to you in particular. Okay, so they're both overseas, one in Holland, one in America. But, you know, their voices are valid and, and we like to hear from our listeners. So anyway, to them, uh, watch this space. We are contemplating a special thing next week. We'll see. Yeah, do not delete your tick tick feed from your phone quite yet. Anyway, later in this show, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass and senior journalist Andrea Vance join us to talk about the results, the implications and the recriminations. And just because this was the COVID election, we also catch up with scientist and coronavirus modeler Dr. Sean Hendy again. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? Well, Adam, I thought we could summarise what happened in the 2020 New Zealand general election, just in case people missed it or haven't taken in the details. All right, good idea. Crack on. Okay, right. Can I do it in newsreader voice? No, because that would be impossible. Just do your usual what's been happening voice, like you've been doing for the past 10 weeks. Mm, All right. Okay, so the overriding theme of the night was the red wave, really. The preliminary results, try and say that fast, the final results will be announced on November 6th, have Labour claiming a parliamentary majority with 64 seats. That's the first time under MMP a single party has had control of the House in that way. Jacinda Ardern led 22 new MPs back to Wellington, the largest new intake since the first Labour government in 1935. It's the first time ever that there are more women than men in the Labour caucus and the scale of the victory is perhaps best seen in the South Island where Labour won the party vote in every electorate, every single electorate in the South. On the left, the Green Party won itself 10 seats and was celebrating one of the biggest surprises of the night, if you ask the pollsters, which is the victory of Chloe Swarbrick in the Auckland Central seat previously held by the retiring National MP Nikki Kaye. It was a bloodbath for National, let's face it, which ended the night with 26.8%, its second worst defeat of all time. That means there will be 35 blue seats, so it's goodbye to 19 of its current MPs. Recriminations have already begun, and we'll come to that later in the show, but former Deputy Leader Paula Bennett has already been vocal, saying the party, quote, didn't articulate an alternative government well enough to voters. One area the polls did get it right was the ACT Party. David Seymour literally sailed to victory. Oh, hang on, hang on. I think I know what you're referring to. You're talking about when David Seymour arrived at his victory party at the Viaduct in Auckland on a boat, right? Yeah. I just want to say it wasn't literally sailing. He was uh, on board a motorboat. All right, Pedant. Thanks for running my line. Anyway, the polls had act at about 8% over the last week, and that's where they landed, finishing on exactly 8%, which is enough to claim 10 seats in Parliament, which, if my maths is correct, hang on, 10 minus 1 is... Nine, yes, nine more seats, which is actually 900% more than they previously had. So ACT needs to find a caucus room bigger than a phone box this term. 
all of the new ACT MPs are newbies in the sense that none have any previous parliamentary experience. And New Zealand first, gone. So it's scraped together just 2.7% of the vote. With Shane Jones coming a distant third in the Northland seat he'd contested in the hopes of saving the party, it seems to be the end of an era for leader Winston Peters, subject to the usual caveats of never count Winston out, etc, etc. And finally, the most exciting race of the night was in Wairiki, where, as we discussed with our colleague Carmen Parahi on last week's episode, the race was on between Labour's Tamati Kofi and the Māori Party's Rawiri Waititi. On the night itself, it was back and forth, back and forth, as the different polling places' numbers came in and the, the lead changed between the two. But it ended with Waititi ahead by 415 votes. So now it's down to the counting of the special votes. So, right now, as it stands, before those special votes are counted, New Zealand has its most diverse parliament with an increased Māori caucus within Labour and ACT, more rainbow representation across the House, its first African MP and first Sri Lankan-born MP. Right, so that's what Parliament will look like. What about the government? Will Labour choose to govern alone or bring the Green Party into some sort of arrangement? We caught up with Stuff's political editor and TikTok regular Luke Malpass to see what he's hearing in Wellington. Kia ora, Luke. Kia ora, guys. Thanks for joining us. So, look, the overriding question is about the shape of the next government, whether there will be any shade of green to it. What are the pros and cons that Jacinda Ardern will be weighing up when it comes to the Greens, and which way is she leaning, do you think? Oh, look, I think the only pro of going with the Greens would be about brand Jacinda, you know, unity, inclusion, and uh, being serious about the environment and climate change. But apart from that, I mean, putting the Greens in a government really doesn't get her an awful lot. I mean, Labour won a majority. I think there's zero chance that there'll be a coalition. And I think that they may give a couple of Green members, make them ministers outside of Cabinet. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of a bit of a hiding to nothing job if you're a Green. I mean, if you're James Shaw or someone, you're a competent minister, used to sort of doing all the stuff. But you're ultimately a price taker, right? Labor's got the numbers to do anything and you just have to go along with it. So right. I think the Greens haven't quite yet wrapped their head around the fact that they got a very good result, but really they sort of lost on the weekend. Yeah, because, I mean, there is a scenario, isn't there, where the Greens are sort of shut out or, or, or stranded, in, in which case they'll be asking themselves, was it all worth it? Strategically, it's quite a big victory for them, but it's not this election, it's the next election. Right. The working assumption that basically everyone had leading into this election was if Labor got 50%, they'd take a fair chunk of that off the Greens. So the Greens had struggled to get back in. In the event, it's actually been just a massive swing to the centre-left of politics. Um, where between them they've got about 57% of the vote. It'll probably go a bit higher after specials. So what that means is that a fair bit of the Greens' vote probably ended up with Labor. And so Labor's never going to do as well as they've done in this election. So in three years' time, if the Greens play their cards right, and particularly I suspect actually if they're in opposition where, they, where Labor can be uh, criticised from the left, hmm. the Greens and the right and National Act, um, they could be in a position to really grow that vote if they do a good, good job this time around and don't sort of tear themselves apart. Mm. So there's been this theory that some National voters will have ticked Labor to keep the Greens out. Is that a credible theory, do you feel? Oh, look, I think it's probably true at the margin, but not for the most part. I mean, I think it's probably far more likely that a lot of people voted for a majority government. Um, you know, post-COVID, a lot of people are like, well, actually, it'd be better if there's just one party they can get through and 
get stuff done. I think the Prime Minister's extraordinary popularity, particularly in the way of sort of dealing with COVID, you know, in the sort of politics world, things keep going, but kind of, you know, out there in the more sort of real world, if you like, I think a lot of people um, remember that and respect it. And I think the other thing, which has probably been a little bit forgotten because Judith Collins I guess, exceeded expectations of at least the sort of, you know, political sort of commentariat class once she got in, is that she's immensely unpopular. And there are actually a lot of people, including a lot of national voters, who would, you know, cross the street uh, if they saw Judith Collins. They would rather do anything. They would never vote for a party that was associated with her. And I think those are a lot of the people who perhaps voted for John Key and Bill English. And I think mm. that's sort of been, been forgotten. I mean, I, I sort of think that probably the level of the, the National Party vote on the weekend is probably the maximum that they could expect to get under a Judith Collins leadership. Right. I have uh, no particular evidence to support. I mean, look, I've seen various bits of polling data, but I, I just, I just think that that's sort of been forgotten how, how polarizing she is. And the people that hate her really hate her. Mm. So. The Greens got in, which wasn't necessarily guaranteed, and the Māori Party got in, which until very shortly before the election, not many commentators were, were talking about very much. So Ardern so far hasn't been particularly embracing of the Māori Party and their new one electorate MP. Why wouldn't she be keen to bring them close in some way? Uh, <laughs> there's a bit of history and bad blood between Labour and the Māori Party, which, of course, sprang out of uh, Helen Clark's foreshore and seabed legislation in the mid-2000s. And of all of the, you know, the provincial seats that Labour won, they'd swap, you know, any of those results for winning Wairiki because this breathes fresh life back into the Māori Party. It gives them resources, it gives them um, a presence in Parliament, and it really gives them a springboard to go around all the marae in New Zealand over the next few years and say, well, you know, three years and say, well, here's what we can do. Labour was so proud and so chuffed in 2017 to get the full set of Māori seats back. They regard them as Labour's seats, really. And to lose one, I, I think is really, I mean, of all of the results, that was about, that was the only really bad mm. one for Labour, but I, it will stick in the craw a bit, I think. The, the other big story of the night, though it was long predicted, was the demise of New Zealand First and, and Winston Peters. What, what becomes of the carcass of New Zealand First? Obviously, there's been a whole lot of stuff around the New Zealand First Foundation, which will come out in the courts in due course. Uh, will be Completely separate organisation? Of course, you know, New Zealand First, New Zealand First Foundation, <laughs> totally different things. Uh, yes, not according to uh, various bits of stuff reporting, it's not. <laughs> but um, I guess that will partly determine if there's any carcass left after all of this. So that's one thing. And the other is that I think what it sort of showed is that um, that sort of vote in New Zealand has probably diminished a bit, I suspect, or at least Labour and National is catering for it really well. I mean, I'd have thought that there's probably 7 or 8% out there of New Zealanders who want a sort of more nationalist sort of a party. But the short history of MMP here has shown us that it's difficult to set a party up. It's difficult to get credible enough people. The easiest way to do it is that you have someone who leaves another party. Mm. So I don't think they'd be back unless they, they found uh, someone with a certain uh, skill set to lead it, and it, it, it won't be Winston Peters. Mm. Mm. Grant Duncan spoke to us last week about a sort of a careful what you wish for if Winston Peters does depart the political scene. He, he warned of a more virulent kind of anti-immigration right-wing party emerging. Do you see that as a possibility? 
it's a possibility in general, but just the specific circumstances of New Zealand at the moment, I don't think it will because New Zealand doesn't have any immigration at the moment. Uh, it is highly unlikely there will actually be much immigration for the next three years. So while in the future there may be one, I don't see it bubbling up this term in, this term in, in government. Yeah, Right. So, so back to Labour, all sorts of lobbying will be underway for ministerial posts. Ardern has a job on her hand filling, there's the ministries vacated by New Zealand First, there's possibly James Shaw's posts, depending on how those green negotiations go, discussions go. Yes, <laughs> talks. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them to go, yeah. you know, it's the sort of negotiation where you say, what would you like, James? Yeah. Oh, I, that's nice. I, yeah, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I, I misread the script. It says discussion here quite clearly, which is what Eugene wrote. Okay, who are going to be the winners and losers? Now, that's a harder one. Uh, well, look, I mean, in general, obviously, the Labour Party winners, there'll be more front bench jobs for Labour Party caucus members. So as far as a reshuffle goes, to be honest, it's too early for me to make any really firm predictions. I would make a few comments. I mean, one is that Grant Robertson will continue to be the, cent- you know, I mean, he's he's finance minister, but he's much more than that in this government. I mean, he took infrastructure essentially off Phil Twyford um, a, a few months ago. And I think given the importance of infrastructure for the COVID rebuild, Robertson will have his hands firmly behind that. Um, I don't know if Twyford will be reappointed transport minister. I'd have thought it would be prudent for Labor to have some fresh air and bring someone in new uh, who can get on with, for example, Auckland's light rail uh, without, without the sort of the baggage of the last three years. And I think the other thing that we'll all have to get used to, um, and this is why Labour is a big winner, there's going to be majority government again. Mm. The um, Labour Party will be able to take decision on, for example, big infrastructure projects or um, or legislative changes they want to make, and they'll just be able to do it. Mm. And there's no upper house here. And in New Zealand, that hasn't been the case since... So in 1993, I think National were elected with 50 out of 99 MPs. So they had a one-seat majority, so they had to be a bit careful. So the first the, the, the 1990 national government was really the last time you have to go back and 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 see this. Mm. Um, the other people I would say would be losers if you sort of want to talk in those terms. Sort of the left of the Labour Party, yeah. Because I think they will. I think they'll be like you, Butte, rub their hands together, big spending, uh, you know, socially transformative stuff. But certainly the party leadership, I think, understands that they won this election by having a lot of national voters that just went straight over to Labour. They didn't go off to United Future. They didn't go to New Zealand first. And they'll have an eye on the next three years mm-hmm. and will know that if they go and start doing kind of real sort of radical kind of, kind of you know, left-wing Labour stuff, that those numbers will fall very quickly and that'll create a very unhelpful narrative for the government. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be transformation light in a way, really, isn't it? I think uh, there are going to be some crunch points like climate change, I guess. Like I don't know if climate work should be such a, such a crunch point. I mean, one is that Labor will be able to work out what they want to do and just get ahead and do it. And I think the other thing is that the that the big sort of structural legislation went through the last Parliament. So that's the legislation for an ETS 
the zero carbon bill and really late into the, the day making listed companies uh, report on their climate liability, which came out during the campaign and is actually a hugely important piece of legislation because it will change the way that big companies have to look at their climate risk because they have to actually accurately account for it and work out a way how to do that. So that will be, be quite important. So a fair bit of this government will be how they get on with that more technocratic work of actually making some of the stuff work. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes, actually. Mm. All right, Luke Mappas, thank you so much for joining us. Terrific. Thanks so much, guys. So what about the opposition? Our colleague and staff senior journalist Andrea Vance spent a lot of time on the National Trail, particularly following leader Judith Collins. It's part of a behind-the-scenes series she's got coming out, and you're not going to want to miss it. So we caught up with Andrea, particularly to find out what she found out about National. Hi, Andrea. Hey, how you doing? So you've been on the tail of all the parties throughout the election, getting the background story. So that means that, among other things, you've been trailing Judith Collins very closely. So without giving away your best lines from the piece you're writing about National for Saturday, what have you been up to? Well, I can give you some secrets since TikTok is so dear to my heart. I'll give you a few. <laughs> but I'm reading, um, I'm, I'm writing a long read on how the election was won and lost. Um, and so it starts on uh, in Saturday's weekend papers and on stuff. It's a three part series and it's beautifully illustrated with um, some just incredible election photographs taken by photojournalist Ian McGregor, who um, he of the famous liniment on your press leaders <laughs> debate special. <laughs> Mr. Tiger Balm, we call him. Mr. Tiger Balm, exactly. So we've been we've been behind the scenes um, uncovering some of the secrets of the campaign, what went wrong, what went right for the parties. So at what point do you think Judith Collins realised the dream was over? You know, probably probably the first debate um, was really a was really a key moment for Judith Collins. That was the TVNZ debate hosted by John Campbell. There have been quite a few of them, I know. She really got fired up in that debate. And it, after a couple of sluggish weeks, it really gave her some momentum. But then I think all of a sudden that was slowed when, if you remember, it crashed to a halt when um, her campaign launch, a virtual campaign launch in Hutt Valley was completely crippled by Paul Goldsmith's fiscal errors in the budget. Labour mm. uncovered those and it dominated all the media over those couple of days. So talking to national MPs about what went wrong, many identified that as a crushing blow in the campaign. One national MP told me that, of course, Paul Goldsmith is a very clever man. He's, he's a lovely man. I like Paul, but he just isn't a details guy. He's a big picture guy and he should never have been ultimately responsible for those spreadsheets and those numbers. So I think probably you could say that Collins was very, very let down by her team. And at that point, I think she realised that she was doing it alone and she was going to be doing it tough. We saw a very confident, I'm having so much fun image from her throughout the campaign and, and especially in the debates too. Was she really? I think she probably was. Remember Judith Collins came in to the job after longing for it for, God, like 10, maybe even 20 years. And mm. she could enjoy that, much of it at least. Um, the caucus came to her on bended knees. And as well as that, I think Judith performs best when she's cleaning up someone else's mess. She effectively overhauled the Department of Corrections and ACC after some major, major scandals. 
And Collins loves the adversarial nature of debates in Parliament. It's her natural home. You know, she's a lawyer after all by training and, and that was what she did before she came into Parliament. But at the point where the National Caucus started throwing rocks at her, I think the most public example that was the famous Denise Lee uh, email, I think the smile definitely faltered at that point. She became a lot more combative with the media. There was that stand-up um, after the Ponsonby Road, uh-huh. Hamish Price, Big Blue Shoes debacle. And she really began criticising Jacinda at every opportunity. I think she went to that as her natural area. But of course, criticising Jacinda, who is so popular and so loved, just really didn't work. You mentioned that email and the, and the leak of it. And in the aftermath of Saturday, she's really putting the asset on whoever it was who leaked that email just 12 days or so out from the election. You know, the email that was critical of Collins making policy on the hoof. So Collins said that leak cost her 5% in the polls, which, which is an extraordinary claim. First of all, is that right, do you think? Yeah, I think it probably did contribute to the absolute drubbing that they got I don't you know five point percent drop is a lot mm. um, and they were already on course it was a horrendous night worse than they ever imagined and um, but the writing was already on the wall at that point yeah and that's because elections come down to trust when the campaign started people trusted Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson to run the country to keep us safe from COVID and to get us out from of COVID and they didn't trust National it's a, an almost impossible task to shift that dial and a, and a disunited caucus and then get, getting your numbers wrong as we've already talked about it just accentuated that mm, mm. so behind the scenes how brutal has it been both in terms of identifying the leaker and, and getting on top of that but also in terms of hostility towards Collins from her own caucus and, and party members it's mm, savage absolutely wow. it's absolutely savage yeah um this happens in opposition. You remember Labour for nine years? The knives were out for David Shearer and he literally goes into disaster zones and saves people's lives. For, <laughs> you know, politics is really, really, really brutal. And I feel for them all. It's awful to watch. And it's even worse when you're in the inside and you're tearing your party and your co- colleagues apart. But National are really smart. And I think especially those who came up under John Key, which was such a united caucus Uh for those three terms of government, they know fighting and leaking loses elections. You're hearing all kinds of bitterness and recriminations at the moment. But I think after a really brief period of bloodletting, and look, when they get a leader that they all like and respect, let's be honest, um, it'll probably stop. And they'll probably give Judith a little bit of time, but... You know, it all comes down to the fact that no one really, really trusts her. It's obviously been brutal since the election, but also in those weeks before. How vicious is the infighting then? It it wasn't, because what you've got to remember with political parties is no matter what they present to the public, there's always backstabbing and ambitions. And politicians are naturally very ambitious, driven people. The problem is, is when it leaks and bleeds out into into the public domain and that's when you've really really got a problem that was the kind of the signal in this campaign that things were going wrong and if things were going right for national if they had a direction and they had a strategy and they had messaging that the candidates could stick to people wouldn't have been so upset and so disgruntled and they wouldn't have run to the media and been complaining to each other and their colleagues. Mm. Um, And I think you're going to see a lot of that in my piece at the weekend. But one thing that's kind of come out a little bit in the last few days is is there was already disgruntlement about the list. Um, Now, 
the list is really important because people were looking at what was, you know, they were on course to lose. And so people start thinking about where they are on the list. Am I going to lose my seat? Am I high? Are we going to get enough party vote to get me in even if I lose my seat? So people were upset because the list, according to national sources, say that the list was stacked um, to suit Judith Collins and before that Todd Miller to save people who were their friends rather than people who deserved to be in that place. And look, I think one illustration of how brutal it was, one national MP said to me this week, you know, the next person in on the list, if Jerry Brownlee decides to resign, which he, he said this week that he won't, but if he decides to resign, the next person in on the list is a friend of Judith Collins, Hareti Hapango. Now, she in the election campaign made a couple of pretty devastating mistakes that it entered the media about Facebook misinformation, and then she lost her seat, in which in which she had a majority and was a national seat, safe seat for a long time. And on the, the MP said to me, on that on that calculus, we might as well just keep Jerry. Wow. So, nice. Also on the list, um, you know, Dr. Shane Reddy was a very good friend of Judith Collins. He meant she mentioned him over and over and over again in Dr. the election Shane. campaign. Dr. Shane Reddy, absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Well, Shane, look, Dr. Shane, it's all we heard for a while. Dr. Shane um, is very, very close. He's hanging on by his fingernails to, to losing his Whangarei seat. There was 160 votes in it. And once the specials are counted, it's very likely that he will lose the seat. But he'll stay in Parliament because he's high up the list. Nicola Willis, also high up the list. People are really upset with her because she backed Todd Muller, which was obviously a disaster. She was a big part of that coup. And then she became close to Judith Collins. Grant Morrison increased his majority in his Wellington central seat and hers was reduced to just over 7,000. People are pointing to that as an as an example of, of why she doesn't deserve that place on the list. So yeah, it's pretty... You see, I'm giving away the secrets, but it's pretty brutal. <laughs> <laughs> While you're talking about that, um, who you put on the list thing, I was thinking this is pretty much the lifeboat philosophical example in real life, isn't it? You know, do you eat the person who can actually navigate the boat, or do you eat the person who's uh, your close friend? Absolutely. Well, they're to- they're totally eating each other. All of them are eating each other <laughs> at the moment. But I think I think you know, like obviously, there's bitterness and finger pointing and blame going on. But some of the wiser heads are saying that this list is not going to help us because there's really talented people that can help with the rebuild and they're out, they're gone, looking for a job. Right. Now, look, apart from worrying about their main opponent's Labour, National had another party to worry about about this election, ACT. So the rise of ACT in the past few months has been extraordinary, huh? Mm, Absolutely. I think a lot of people are attributing ACT's success to National's failure. Um, and of course, ACT did take a lot of votes from people who were really disappointed with um, with National. But I think that is slightly unfair to ACT because ACT ran an awesome campaign. They were very, very successful. They picked up issues where people couldn't find a voice, people who weren't happy with the COVID response, who were unhappy with the lockdowns, who thought that it wasn't the right thing to do, who were worried about the economy. They picked up people from National, but also New Zealand First, who were disgruntled about the the gun laws, the amnesty. And so they just really ran with it. But they also ran a really successful, really good campaign and actually on a shoestring as well. That's what's really impressive about it. And you and hats off to, to David Seymour. You know, a lot of people don't act, like ACT and they don't like the policies, but David Seymour is a kind of a lovable character. You know, he's a real dork. He's really awkward. He does crazy things like turn up to his election night party half pissed on a boat. (laughs) So you've got to love him for it, you know? (laughs) And finally, the question everyone is asking, 
Will Judith Collins hang on? And if so, for how long? Yeah, well, yes, yes and no. <laughs> um, the classic equivocal answer. Um, I think for a time, no one wants that job. And so they'll, they'll let her keep it for, you know, if you're a betting person, maybe a year. Um, and then there's a pattern. There'll be a dismal poll and they'll get fed up and they'll roll her. Um, maybe she can buck that pattern, that trend, who knows. But there is another person waiting in the wings, and that's the new botany MP, Chris Luxon, former CEO of Air New Zealand. They're calling it a national project Luxon, <laughs> wow. um, getting, getting him ready for the leadership. If you ask me, I'm not yet convinced. There's a lot of journalists I respect think that he's the next John Key. Um, for what it's worth, my thoughts are he's a first-termer, and you've got to learn mm. how to breathe through your nose and earn your stripes. He's already got the caucus offside with some naked ambition, which demonstrates, I think, a lack of political nous. He's also deeply, deeply religious, which is off-putting to many voters. And then, like, does this guy have the stomach to take on the Crusher Collins? On the flip side of that, he's got the support of John Key. John Key thinks he's the man. So a lot of the caucus still love John Key. He's the god that they all worship at. So if he's saying Luxon's the man, then maybe he is, and maybe mm. I'm wrong. But even Key had a term in Parliament before he took the leadership, didn't he? And, and he also displayed that ruthlessness, knifing Brian Neeson in, in the Helensville electorate. So, mm. you, know, there's, you know, there was a lot to Key, wasn't there? Politics is very, very different to business. And I just, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, and do, do, we, do we really, really want another John Key? Like, is that where, yeah. does the country want to look backwards? John Key, you know, had the job, did nine, three, you know, nine years. Um, was it nine years? Three terms, yep, anyway. Three terms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, how quickly we forget. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but do we, want, do we want to go back to that? We've got a very different prime minister now, progressive government. Do, do, do we want to you know, turn back the clock in time. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Mm. It's fun fun to wonder, though. All right, Andrea, I can't wait to uh, see your pieces unfold from Saturday. Thank you very much for joining us. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Right, so this was the COVID election. Everyone kept saying it, so it must be true, right? It certainly meant there was plenty of focus on the rights and wrongs of New Zealand's response to the coronavirus pandemic and the economic response. In August, when the Auckland cluster emerged, triggering the four-week delay in the election, we caught up with Dr Sean Hendy. Remember him? University of Auckland and director of Tupunahama Satini. He's one of the scientists who's led the modelling, which has informed some of the policy decisions. Since the August outbreak was brought under control, though, scientists have kind of sat on the sidelines while politicians debated and blustered and threw accusations. So now the election is over, we thought it was time to go back to Dr Hendy and I asked him. So this was the COVID election. It was certainly the shadow that was cast over the whole campaign. But were there any ideas that emerged during the course of the campaign that changed your thinking in terms of how we can protect the population? I mean, I have to say not really. <laughs> I mean, elections aren't, uh, aren't always the greatest places for sort of having uh, evidence, rational debate <laughs> about topics. And of course, the election period feels like we've been in election mode for a very long time. So I don't think anything really new came out of the election. I mean, obviously, we're getting closer to having a vaccine or not, you know, at least knowing where we stand with respect to a vaccine. And we have seen some more recent announcements about that. And of course, there was a bit of a debate around, you know, opening up the border, what should our border settings be? I mean, I think the, the major parties were 
competing with each other over who could be more strict around the border. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> that's certainly probably a good idea for the time being, particularly while we're watching cases um, increase overseas. There's probably been less progress maybe around travel bubbles with other countries, probably because of the election. You know, my guess is we might have got a lot further in conversations with countries like China, Taiwan, and even a little bit further maybe with Australia had we not been in election mode. So that maybe delayed some of those things. We were also um, very much disrupted by that August outbreak in Auckland, which I think Mm. concentrated everybody's attention, you know, back on the immediate how do we manage this this particular outbreak? So yeah, I, I feel like we're a bit behind on some of that broader picture stuff and looking forward to having some politicians back at their desks so we can engage in a little bit, little bit deeper discussion now and I think start to talk about you know things like travel bubbles, get those kind of protocols established with other countries. You know, we've just seen the sort of little mini debacle that we've had with Australia opening the border. It's, it's, not, like, it's not as though Kiwis pose risks, you know, when we, when we travel overseas. But it just shows how difficult it is for countries to manage situations like this where we've got, you know, different travel requirements around different parts of, of, of countries. You'd like to think elections were the time to talk, <laughs> to talk about longer-term things, but I think this particular election, you know, for a variety of circumstances, d- just hasn't allowed us to do that. It was yeah. a very risk-averse time, wasn't it, basically? Yeah, and there were some parties pushing a, f- a few ideas, um, but probably not well thought out in the, in the circumstances. Obviously, everybody's, you know, things you might have been thinking in January, February, uh, you know, everything's, everything's changed. And so those parties that perhaps under ordinary circumstances might have been putting up sensible suggestions for, you know, really weren't that well informed. Um, and at times I did think that, you know, it did expose some of the politicians to their lack of understanding um, of what we were dealing with. Yeah. So, so there, I mean, there were a couple of specific things that came up that we just wanted to run by you. One was around, around pre-flight testing of incoming flights. Is that, is that something that would have any impact at all? It could. It's, it, would be, it would have a marginal impact. A lot of the things that were talked about were really quite marginal things. Politicians were in a situation where they had to sort of try and offer solutions, and there really weren't, you know, there weren't, you know, it, the, those the solutions that that are out there that you know are really quite complicated ones. Um, there's there's not silver bullet solutions that you that you'd normally see people sort of trying to throw up at um, at election time. So many of these things that have been talked about, the co- you know, the COVID card became a bit of a thing for a while. These are all small pieces of the puzzle rather than big game changers. What about, I mean, we've we've seen in recent days the numbers come out around the drop-off in terms of the use of the COVID tracing app. And, th- and there was some discussion, particularly from ACT, around could we take a more Taiwan-like approach of use of technology and so on. W- where do you sit on that? Yeah, I mean, look, we certainly can make more use of technology. Again, you know, for where we are in the world and just the the way Kiwis deal with privacy here is very different to other countries. You know, we do put a high premium on privacy, on not letting government watch everything we do. You know, that's where we sit in the world and uh, countries like Taiwan, much more used to having an intrusive government or, or government surveillance. So I, I think those kind of things would be hard to hard to deploy here. You know, 
the advantages that we've got is that actually we do listen to government. We, you know, we don't have to be as coercive. Our lockdown was effective as China's lockdowns, right? But we didn't have to do it with drones patrolling in the street. You know, it is useful looking at other countries and seeing what they're doing, um, but we're always going to be um, a, a little bit different and we have to think about whether those solutions will work here. I think there's a tendency to look at other countries, pick out one thing they're doing yeah. and go, well, if we did that, we should be right. But actually, it's a whole range of things. We've figured out our own way of handling this. And yes, let's learn from other countries. But I think we do need to be realistic about what will work here and the fact that it's a whole range of things rather than just a single magic bullet. You said that some politicians have, were somewhat exposed during the campaign in terms of not quite knowing what was going on. And when we last spoke to you, you were keen on an equivalent of the chief scientific advisor, but for the leader of the opposition. Has that conversation gone anywhere? I mean, do you still reckon that's a good idea? Yeah, look, I definitely do. I think the election really threw that <laughs> into, into high relief. And, you know, to be fair, right, on the, uh, the National Party, we had a big change in leadership. And so they, I think under any circumstances, there would have been a period where they, they needed to get up to speed. You know, I think Shane Retty coming in definitely lifted their game and lifted the conversation and it became more specific and more evidence-based. I guess that's a message to all parties, you know, you know, have a few scientists or, or medical professionals in your mm. ranks because you never know when you'll need them. I think post the election, post us sort of wrapping up this initial phase of our response, that's something I'm, I'm going to be pushing as other mechanisms of science advice. Right. Okay. So, can we turn to the infection on on Sunday of a of a port port worker? So, in the sliding scale of risks that we face, where where would you rank the ports and and what have, what we saw on Sunday? Oh, uh, look. So, so there's definitely risks there. Ships are good <laughs> places for for the virus to hang out, even though they take longer to get here. So, it's a little bit different to the risk you're dealing with with an airplane coming in. COVID can be passed around between crew members. So even if the voyage takes longer than two weeks, right, which you'd normally would be our quarantine period, if it can get passed between crew members, you could end up with people coming off that ship infectious, even though it's two weeks since it left port. And I know that uh, port workers are using PPE, but they're not trained medical professionals. Um, they're in unusual circumstances. And so the risks are certainly, I'm not going to say high, but moderate. I think the other thing is, you know, we, we, we have ships coming in from a range of countries. A lot of our flights come from very specific countries, but, our, you know, ships come from a much broader part of the world. And so we're more likely to have vessels coming from, from parts of the world where, you know, where there isn't surveillance. So it's very hard to tell what the prevalence of disease is in these countries. So ports are definitely... Uh, risk areas. I mean, it's good that they've got this testing regimes in, in place, right? And so I think this case, the worker had a test on October 2nd and was due for another test, you know, shortly after they developed symptoms. They went and got the test proactively, which is great. It's obviously not great that, <laughs> that our workers are exposed, but, you know, in order to keep the country going, these roles have to exist. We do our best to protect them, but then also let's make sure we, we, we're getting that regular testing done, protect their families and protect the rest of the community. It's Eugene here. Just jumping out of the interview for a second. Since we recorded this, there has been confirmation of two confirmed community cases amongst contacts of the port worker who were being monitored and tested after the initial case was discovered. And pretty much as we were talking with Sean, news broke of the outbreak amongst fishing boat crews who had arrived in Christchurch from Russia and the Ukraine. 
but they are all within managed isolation and quarantine facilities. Right, back to our chat with Professor Andy. You're not a gambling man, so far as we know, but but you are someone who looks at models around risk. Overall, what are the odds that we're going to have to go back into lockdown any time soon, that, that there could be a, a, another sort of Auckland-August-style outbreak? Yeah, look, I'm optimistic over summer. Like, the big thing is trying to catch those incursions early, right? That's the difference between lockdown or not. You know, if you catch those things early, well, then you avoid lockdown, right? You can manage it locally with contact tracing around that case and maybe the next layer of, of close contacts. So I'm feeling reasonably optimistic going into summer where we know just based on what happened over on the Northern Hemisphere, that the virus doesn't spread as easily in summer. And I th- that's partly the, just the environmental conditions that the virus prefers and the fact we spend more out, time outdoors over summer, that we're not going to see another Auckland August outbreak, that, you know, such as, um, such as we've just had, and, and that will make it through summer. And then we're starting to get into next year. We might have new testing technologies available to us. We may have built the app out so that it's using Bluetooth and just out that we might have a wider range of tools. So I feel kind of reasonably confident that we've, we've bought ourselves some time. I mean, the big thing is that I think we've got to keep up the testing making sure that we catch it early should it make it through the border somewhere. And so that's my biggest concern, that we keep up those testing rates over the summer. You know, when we go to the beach and we develop a bit of a sore throat, it's going to be a bit more of a drag (laughs) on summer holidays to go get a test, but we're going to have to keep that up. Because this is an election podcast, we're thinking election cycles, so we want to talk about the next three years. So what's the breadth of scenarios over the next three years that you're modelling right now at uh, Tipunha Martini? Yeah, so we're looking at what we can do more broadly around the border. I said at the start, talking about bubbles with low-risk countries. Now, I have to say, there's not many low-risk countries at the moment. But luckily, some of them are pretty close trading partners. So China is managing extremely well. So the prospect of opening up travel with China, I think, is actually, you know, certainly when we're looking at the next couple of years um, and even next year, I think that's something that, that should be possible and should be doable. That's pretty good news. I think Australia, again, you know, Victoria's problems aside, has largely managed the disease quite well. And so, again, you know, once Victoria's really had a clear run without cases, you know, we can put Australia back into the low risk category. That starts to expand our world quite a bit. When we talk about the borders, we can start looking at, at, at different types of quarantine, shorter quarantine, reducing quarantine altogether. And I think that will be quite important for New Zealand in the, in the, in the medium term. Have you been dropping in the vaccine into your models yet? And what does that look like? I guess there's more than one scenario there. Yeah, and I, th- I think the difficult thing with the vax, the vaccine at the moment is we don't we don't know quite what we're going to be looking at from a from an effectiveness point of view. Um, so we are starting to look at how the vaccine could be the best deployed. Because we've eliminated, you know, we've got a different challenge in how we deploy the vaccine potentially. 
as opposed to, you know, a country like the UK where the disease is very widespread. I think their strategies are, are relatively obvious. You want to protect vulnerable communities first up, right? The people that, because the disease is out of control, get it to the people who are at danger of having, uh, you know, suffering the worst consequences. Um, in New Zealand, you know, the initial focus is probably going to be on, on people at the border while we maintain that kind of that strict border control. It then gets more difficult once we start to say, well, let's start relaxing things at the border a little bit and, and start relying on on the vaccine to do, the, to do that work. And then I think we're starting to look at, well, you know, where are people who are coming in going to go? <laughs> and so then you might be looking at, say, Auckland, right, which is, you know, at the moment it's at a higher risk of an outbreak because of the MIQ facilities. It's, the, it's our major travel hub. You know, we might have to look um, geographically at geographic preferences as opposed to population-wide measures. It's going to depend on the number of doses we can get at any given time. It's going to depend on the effectiveness of the, of the vaccine. And then the thing that I think will be, you know, it's going to take us a while to really learn about is the long-term effectiveness. Is it going to give us immunity? We're not even sure about that for you know just natural when where you've caught the disease in your own immune response how long that lasts for and that's going to tell us whether life will go back to anything like how it was mm. <laughs> when we didn't have to worry about things like this as opposed to a disease that actually is with us for the rest of our lives that we're getting shots every now and again as we do with the flu but this is a nastier flu i think in that kind of the, the vaccine space there's a lot of work to be done a lot of thinking to be done and a lot of just observation and learning about how these things work i think there's probably uh, amongst some people at least a misunderstanding that the vaccine is going to be some sort of silver bullet but clearly we you know we just don't know enough yet so at the risk of skipping ahead to the last chapter how the hell do you think this thing ends Oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be great if the vaccine was a silver bullet. And, and we, you know, that might happen, right? I mean, we may get a vaccine that is actually highly effective, like works in, in most people and provides long-lasting immunity. Then it's, yeah, you know, we're back in a couple of years back to the world that we had, you know, a year ago. Probably it's somewhere in between where this is something that's going to be with us for a very long time and then we're looking at managing these risks and so COVID's just going to be a fact of life that we're dealing with and it will change our behaviour and it will change our ability to go to different parts of the world and it'll just be something we have to manage. Just to end with a political question, New Zealand has ended up in a, a virtually unique situation where we've got total absence. That means that stepping back into the higher risk zone, even with the vaccine, where you start to say, OK, we can accept that certain amount of risk, and the word risk really actually means a certain amount of death. Do you have any sympathy for the view, which has come somewhat from the right, saying New Zealand's made trouble for itself because it's easy to go into eradication, very hard to come out of it, politically speaking? Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, I, I see it the completely opposite way, right? I mean, it would be very hard for Sweden to choose to be us, right? Mm. But actually, we can always choose to be Sweden. There's obviously issues around the economic damage, right? That, you know, you might argue, well, we've, we've did all this terrible economic damage and we're going to have to end up being Sweden anyway. But we've already gained a lot 
by being where we are, you know, in terms of the knowledge we have about the disease, the treatment options we've we've got for the disease, the disease is being treated better overseas, and we now can learn from that. And so if we did have a second large outbreak here, we're in a better position because we've bought ourselves that time. Even if we're kicking the can down the road, the can's getting smaller as we kick it. Yeah, that's right. We're learning all the time. You know, we saw how This time around in August, we had a much more targeted lockdown and we were able to do that because we had much more confidence in our contact tracing. We're upskilling. We're getting better at managing it. Countries like, if I look at the US, they're going backwards. (laughs) They're actually getting worse in many ways at handling it. Mm. People working in their health system are getting worn out. Their modelers are just in despair. Mm. So I'd much rather be in our position than a lot of other countries. To be fair, when we look at impact to the economy from things like lockdowns, it's been borne more by some parts of the economy than others, right? And and I think we do have to recognise that. And the government has to make sure that it is supporting parts of the economy that have borne the brunt of the lockdown because the benefits have accrued to us all. It's put us in a much better position as a country overall. But for some people, they've obviously struggled and carried the load more than others. All right, Dr. Sean Handy, thank you so much for joining us once more. Yep, good to talk to you guys again. That was the Tick Tick Podcast, Motarapere, Firinga Onuku, Ruatakau, Marua. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham, thank you to Sean Hendy, Luke Malpass, Andrew Vance, Verity Johnson, Patrick Kruitz and Carol Hirschfeld, and all the guests that we've had over the 10 weeks of the show. You can find us on all the podcast podcast platforms even and if you want to get in touch with us you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz if you want to support Stuff's journalism financially go to the link on the Stuff website stuff.co.nz we'll see you sometime soon Matewa.